0: Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning through the works of Christ. We, we come to You as Your children. We come to the throne of grace without fear. We come with boldness, not in our abilities or our good works, but in Christ's accomplishments. And by faith, we, we come in Christ, clothed in His righteousness, to worship You, the King of glory. And we want to to worship You appropriately according to Your revelation. So Holy Spirit, we do pray that You would illuminate today, that You would reveal truth that would transform lives, that would encourage and edify and equip so that we would magnify this great work that brings us into Your presence, God. We want to magnify Jesus according to Your Word today. We pray that we would do that. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let me go ahead and read with you Philippians 1, 12 to 21 this morning. The Apostle Paul writes from prison in Rome to the Philippians, and he writes this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. And then as he speaks into the future of what he's going to do in light of what God has done, he says this in verse 18b. Not just that I rejoice now, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But with full courage, now as always, Christ will be magnified, honored, megaluno in the Greek, in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We, we see the Apostle Paul doing something magnificent here in light of his extreme circumstances. We see the Apostle Paul joyfully magnifying Jesus by serving others. First, he's, he's encouraging the gathered church at Philippi by writing this letter. Secondly, he's evangelizing the lost Roman soldiers in his imprisonment. And thirdly, he's doing all this basically sacrificially so that he could magnify the one he serves and lives for and will die for one day. He's living and dying for the glory of Jesus in this text. He's saying, this is my life. This is living, this is eternal life, this is the the quality of life that I have been given through Christ's sacrifice. I am not my own, I have been bought with a price and I belong to Jesus and I want to make much of Him. The word honor there in verse 20 is what really, really will spin off of this morning to, to expand on, to talk about because I want us to understand what it means to magnify Jesus according to His word. The word honor is megaluna in the Greek. Mega. It means basically to make great. To make great. Which which is kind of hard to understand because Jesus is already great, right? But it means to to make famous. To declare, to proclaim, to exalt, to exalt in. Honor. Have, Have you done that this week? How have you... How have you made Jesus famous this week? You you do that in your home as you teach your kids, as you talk with your spouse, as you reach out to the lost, as you gather here this morning. You are Megaluno. You are honoring Jesus. You are magnifying Christ through this gathered session. Paul was doing all of that in the midst of extreme circumstances difficult and distressful circumstances yet all the while he's worshiping God and seeking to serve like Christ by giving his life up for others so that they can see how great Jesus is that's the Christian life we are to magnify Jesus we don't make him bigger we just focus in on his bigness and we explain that to others by our life by our gathering by our evangelization By our service? That's what Paul's doing here. He wanted his whole entire life and even his death to magnify Jesus' great worth. This is what every Christian desires. But verses 20 and 21 seem pretty extreme. Until we remember what we have gained through Jesus' life and death. If we remember why we were saved and what we were saved to do... Verse 21 doesn't seem so extreme. To live is Christ and to die in such a way that would glorify Christ is our desire. And dying is our gain because we, we lose this body of death and we gain eternal life in Christ. And we one day will await a new body that's made to absorb the glory of God without being destroyed. But we need to remember why Paul says this. Why Paul seems so extreme about this statement. To live is Christ. It means everything I do is to look toward magnifying Christ. I want everything in my life to make much of Jesus. Even my death. Why does he say that? Because that is the good work that he was called to do. That's the good work that we're called to do. According to Ephesians 2. Go there with me. Ephesians 2 and verse 8. When we remember what this text says, we can refocus and realize that our life is to be given to magnifying Christ out of joyfulness, out of thankfulness, not out of legalistic duty, but delightful duty because we are Christ's ambassadors bought with His precious blood by God's grace. Look what it says in 2.8. It says, for by grace, God's unmerited, undeserved favor, by, God, by grace you have been rescued, saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And then the verse that's often left out is the next one. This is why you're saved. You're saved so that you wouldn't boast in yourself, but boast in what Christ has done, because of what Christ has done has changed you. For we are God's workmanship, God's product, God's produce, if you will, created in Christ Jesus for this purpose, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is the greatest work that we could do as a result of our salvation as Christians? What is the greatest work? According to Paul, the greatest work would be to magnify Christ's work. To declare it in the congregation. To declare it in prison. To declare it in the streets. To declare it through service and dedication. That's what Paul's doing back in Philippians. He's magnifying the gift of salvation. He's making much of Jesus in his imprisonment. That's his attitude while he's suffering. That needs to be our attitude when we go through difficulties. We need to realize our difficulties serve as an opportunity to make much of Christ and God's grace. But before we can actually do this, I do want us to focus in on verse 20's phrase that Paul said there when he says that he wants to honor Christ Jesus with his life, with his body, or whether by life or by death. On your outline that you have there in the bulletin, you can see that the Bible calls for us to magnify Jesus' worthiness or Christ's worthiness through corporate edification, evangelistic proclamation, and sacrificial dedication. I think Paul did all of this here in Rome as he is imprisoned and writing to the Philippians. I think he called the church... Together to encourage them corporately. I think he was evangelistically proclaiming the glory of Jesus to magnify him, and he was sacrificially dedicated to this ministry for the glory of Jesus, to make much of Christ, to make him famous. I mean, isn't that what we want in every aspect of our life? We want people to, to not see us, we want to decrease and let them see Christ increase. But that's not possible apart from God's revelation. You know, if you want to be a witness for Christ, it's not done in a vacuum. It's done through edification. It's done through revelation. It's done through study and work. Without biblical knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done, you cannot honor or magnify him properly. So you can't be a faithful evangelist unless you know who Christ is and what he's done. And then you can't hold it back. You can't edify the saints unless you study the work of Christ and give them something that will nourish them. That's what Paul desires to do. That's what we all desire to do. But without biblical revelation, there cannot be any true magnification of Christ and His worthiness. So the Bible is essential to Worship. Worship isn't primarily a feeling that we stir up inside of us. There are feelings associated with worship. But worship is making much of Christ according to His Word. And that comes through study. That's why this gathering is important. Corporate edification is important for that. That's what Paul prayed would happen to the saints at Ephesus. He he prayed that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they would see the, the beauty of Christ. Paul commands pastors, look with me in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, Paul commands pastors to proclaim biblical truth, to illuminate the church and to protect the church, to produce purity in Christ's church. Without the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, the explanation of the word, false teaching will come into the church. And there, where there is false teaching, there is not true worship of Jesus. When error comes into the church, the truth about Jesus is diluted, and it is not worthy of our King and our God. So right teaching leads to right worship, right exaltation, praise, thanksgiving. In 2 Timothy, we see all that we need to praise God appropriately appropriately, and worship and magnify Jesus comes from God's revelation. Revelation. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Theonoustos. It's God-breathed. It's alive with His power. It's breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's, it's profitable for teaching doctrine about Jesus. It's profitable for reproving, bringing conviction because we've sinned against Christ. It's profitable to correct us, to restore us back into right fellowship with Christ. It's profitable to train us in what Christ has accomplished, his righteousness, and show us how to live in light of that. It's profitable for the man of God so that he may be competent, equipped for every good work, every good work being living to magnify Jesus through edification, through evangelization, through dedication. Chapter 4 says, here's how you do it. Here, here's how a church learns to worship Christ and make much of Him and make Him famous. Preach the Word, he says. Look what it says in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why does Paul tell us this? Why is Paul telling a pastor to go to the church and open the book and preach about Christ? Why, why would he even have to do that? He does that because it's not done. Because where there's not the preaching of Christ, there's not worship. And Paul wants Jesus to be worshipped. And where there is not worship, something else comes in to fill that void, which is Self-idolatrous worship. Idolatrous actions, idolatrous thoughts, philosophies, ideologies that will destroy the proper and pure worship of Christ. That's why he says this in verse 3. Here's why you preach the word and you use it to instruct and exhort with patience. The time is coming when the people... When the people, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So that implies to me in verse 5 that to fulfill the ministry, the pastor must be willing to work as an evangelist, explaining who Jesus is consistently to the church. He must also endure suffering for preaching unvarnished truth to the church. And he also must be sober-minded when he comes before the church and come trembling before a holy God who he represents to the people through his word. This is important to Paul. Because Paul wants to see people understand the glory of his Savior and give him the honor he deserves. Without true biblical understanding, we can't do that. We are in danger of idolatry apart from this revelation. We will follow our vain imaginations if we're not careful will say things about jesus like my jesus wouldn't be like this my jesus isn't judgmental my my jesus would never condemn this my jesus is love 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 well jesus is also holy 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 he's also wrath 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 just 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 grace 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 he's also all those things we must see him in his fullness or we will develop an idol in our heart of what we think Jesus is like, shaping it after our own understanding, not God's revelation. It's very easy to do that. Let me, let me give you a, a simple definition of idolatry. As I, I mentioned before, Calvin says that all of our hearts are like perpetual idol factories. We're cranking them out one after the other. And unless we have the word of God to wash that away and clarify the truth, we will continue to be idolaters. But we need the word so that we'll prevent this. Let me tell you what idolatry is, even according to what I think you can see throughout Scripture. Idolatry is simply this. Idolatry throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, we see it defined pretty much in these terms. Idolatry is thinking thoughts about God that are untrue of God. Thinking thoughts about God that are not true of Him, according to His word. Or, and this is probably the more predominant idolatrous action we see today, Idolatry is also entertaining thoughts about God that are unworthy or too low of him. That is also idolatry. Basically saying, well, I like God to be sovereign over a lot of stuff, but not my salvation. That's a low thought of God. That's a low thought of who he is and what he says he's going to do. And a low thought of God leads to an idolatrous view of God. And idolatry is dangerous. God will not tolerate idolatrous worship. In, in the New Testament, we see that God did not I, tolerate idolatrous worship in the, the example of Ananias and Sapphira, who were supposed to come before God thankfully, joyfully, and give from the heart. Not give out of compulsion, not give to look impressive, Yet they wanted to impress, and so they approached God in worship and giving in such a way that was idolatrous, and God struck them dead in the New Testament. He will not tolerate false worship. What did that do to the church in the book of Acts? It purified the church because the church said, look, um, God takes worship seriously. You lie to him, you die. We should take God that seriously this morning. Why are we here? Are we here to truly adore and magnify our Savior? Are we here to honor Jesus in our body, whether by life or by death? In the Old Testament, I want to give you a couple examples of idolatrous acts done in the name of worship so that you can see God's view of idolatrous worship done in the name of God. Look with me in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel Chapter 6, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. This is a story of Uzzah. It's actually a story of David's disobedience and Uzzah's idolatrous action of approaching God on his terms, not God's terms. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bela, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And here's where where David messed up. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. How was the ark of God to be carried? His chosen men were to carry it according to his chosen way, his chosen means of transporting it. And David Usurped God's authority. and he, he, he thought he'd do God a favor. He put it on a new cart. Makes it more productive, easier, more contemporary. Worship should be contemporary, right? Easy, comfortable. Not according to God. It was sacrificial for Christ. On, on a, he put on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadad, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadad, we're driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord. They're just they're enjoying this comfort and this, this uh, contemporary approach to ministry here with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon Uzzah, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. (laughs) The ark was falling. What would you do? Whoa, I'll steady it. The assumption of Uzzah here was that he could approach God's holiness with his defiled hands. Or that his hands were cleaner than the dirt that it could have fallen into. And God said, you touch the ark of God and you die. You approach me any other way than with the way I have ordained and you will die. I am holy, holy, holy. God did not tolerate good intentions when they contradicted his revelation. Look with me in Leviticus to see another example of this. Leviticus 10. Leviticus 10, 1 to 3. This is the story of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who again approach worship based on their feelings, their thoughts, their contemporary view of trying to to stylize this service in such a way that would be more glorious than what God had actually said. So they they come to God on their own terms. They come to God to make God look more relevant according to their, their help. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each Took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire. Strange fire. Fire that was not authorized by God. Before the Lord they offered this, which he had not commanded them. And look what happened. The fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. See, in, in Nadab and Abihu and in Uzzah's case, they could have boasted that they had brought something to God that he didn't ask for. God said, I would not tolerate that. You are to magnify my revelation, my word, my son, his work, not yours. So worship is, is only acceptable to God when it's done according to his word. We don't come to God here, even this morning, and worship him according to our will. Not our human will, but the will of God that's revealed in his word. That's why we had songs that were biblically based. That's why we had reading of scripture to edify and prepare you to hear the word. Those are the things that are commanded of us in the New Testament to come before the saints and deliver so that you could hear the word, see the word, be a part of the word and its declaration as you receive it according to God's revelation. These, these examples need to teach us that true worship must be guided by God's Word. That's the only way to truly magnify Jesus. That's what we want to do. But to do that, we have to drink deeply from God's Word if we're going to worship God appropriately. Look what it says in John 4. John 4:24. 24. Yes, we'll be doing a lot of moving from Scripture to Scripture this morning, so take notes if you can't follow along. John 4.24, here we see Jesus telling us that if we're going to truly worship Him, we must drink deeply according to God's will of His word, of His revelation. We must know Him according to His word, in truth. That's what John 4.24 says when Jesus speaks to this, this woman He says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And truth here is speaking of the truth that is revealed in God's word. Not truth received from outside of God's word, but truth from God's word is what we must drink deeply of if we're going to adore him. If we're going to magnify him, if I'm going to talk about how great he is, I must do it according to his revelation. If I tried to represent any one of you and talk to other people about you and tell them how great thou art, and I did so based on simply just a, a first-time meeting, and I didn't really spend time with you, I didn't get to know you, I didn't talk to you, I didn't go to your home, I didn't spend time with your family, I could not accurately represent you. And so why, why would we think we could accurately represent and honor and magnify Jesus if we don't know him according to his Word. We can't. But the more we know of Him, the more we will worship Him. That's why we're here this morning. We're here to learn to do what Paul is doing in in Rome when he's writing to the Philippians. We're here to worship God biblically by magnifying, honoring Jesus corporately, evangelistically, and sacrificially. That's how we worship God. We worship Him Biblically, when we, number one, gather corporately. Number two, when we scatter evangelistically. And number three, when we live sacrificially as His called out people. So we're going to look at these three points this morning and study how to worship. Number one, we worship God and joyfully, I would say this, joyfully magnify Jesus through, number one, corporate edification. That's what Paul Instructs us to do. That's what Paul himself did. Look with me in Titus to see that. Titus chapter 1. Titus 1. Describes how Paul was corporately edifying the church. Paul Paul is here showing us that he was willing to live or die. So that Christ's church could be gathered corporately. Paul was willing to live for the honor of Christ. By giving his life to the corporate body. And to gather them together to understand who Christ is. that's what he says in Titus 1 that's what his job was that's what his desire was in Titus 1.1 1, 1, it says Paul a servant a slave of God an apostle means a special sent messenger of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began before time eternal and that at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. I'm Paul, I'm the slave of God, the messenger of Christ, for the sake of the elect, so that they would be gathered together in the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in the hope of God's life that He's given us in Christ, based on His promise that was manifested in His Word through the preaching He says, I'm giving my life to help the church to gather corporately and edify them so that they could testify to the great God and Savior who saved them. That's what we do when we gather corporately. That's what Nate and I try to achieve when we gather you together corporately. We're not here to entertain you. And and listen, attendance, attendance in and of itself does not equal worship. It doesn't. It doesn't magnify Christ just to show up here. Worship flows out of a heart that has been informed by the Word of God and responds to the work of God in Christ. That's when worship starts to come out of us when we gather together corporately as a church. Edification includes magnifying Jesus through active preaching. That means preaching that's not boring. That means preaching that comes from the Word of God, not from the mind of men. It means preaching that's centered on the Word, that's calling you to respond and to listen as God speaks to His people through His preacher. That's how we magnify Him corporately. Corporate magnification of Christ also comes through active listening. You're not just here as a passive listener, I hope. I hope you're listening for the glory of God. I hope you're listening and absorbing the truth so that you could actively respond to the Word and honor Christ in your body, whether by life or by death, because of the things that you're learning as we gather together corporately. Corporate worship is essential. It is God's will. It is God's command for His people. It's here through the preaching and singing and encouraging of the saints that Jesus and His worth is magnified among His people. That's what He wants us to do. He wants us to magnify Christ when we come together magnify Christ by stirring up one another unto good works stir up one another to continue in the battle when it is hard he wants us to stir one another up through singing biblical songs songs that exalt Christ and his accomplishments he wants us to gather together to encourage one another personally as we fellowship and enjoy the unity we now have because of Christ's sacrifice Look with me at Romans 15. Here is what God wants us to do when we gather. He wants us to gather together, gather corporately, so we can joyfully magnify the work of Jesus that brings us into his body, into his family. Look what it says in, let me just start in verse 1 of 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. That's edification. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days, that's the Word of God, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That's the Old Testament primarily that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. This is for the church. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together... Here's here's the beauty of it all. Here's when we gather. Here's what the corporate gathering is for. It's so that together you may with one voice magnify... The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we gather corporately. That's why we pour over the Word. That's why we teach. That's when we go through verse by verse. That's when we do these kind of here, this kind of topical approach to looking at what God says about worship. It is to edify the church so that we would be united around the work of Christ and know the work of Christ so that we could declare with one voice, one glorious voice into heaven right now God is magnificent because Christ has shown us that through his sacrifice and his love for us. That's why we're here gathering corporately. It is to magnify Jesus, whether by life or by death. We're also gathered here this morning to respond and act in light of the great life and grace we've been given through Christ that brings us into this corporate gathering. This gift that God's given us is not to be hoarded by us. It is to be shared with the world. That's how we make Jesus famous outside of this building. So secondly... We worship God and joyfully magnify Jesus through evangelistic proclamation. The Apostle Paul was willing to live or die for this, to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the gospel to the lost, to his enemies, to his friends, to his brothers, to the Jews. But someone was even more dedicated to this. Someone was even more dedicated to live and die for the gospel than Paul jesus jesus joyfully magnified his father through evangelistic proclamation from a cross the cross is the greatest pulpit in all history from the cross we see the holiness of god we see that vindicated we see the mercy of god revealed there on the cross in king jesus dying in our place and from the cross, He is crying out to the lost, Come to Me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. And if our Lord did that, how could we keep that back? How could we not declare it? Look what He says in Luke 23 on the cross. This is just astounding. If, if, if anyone had a right, if anyone had the right to stop evangelizing because of weariness, because of fear, because of facing the, the extremes of death... Jesus had the right to stop. But Jesus to his dying breath was preaching the gospel of God, reaching the lost with love and mercy from the cross. Luke 23, 33 says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were there they crucified him. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Everyone is mocking Jesus. Even the guilty. Even the one that's declared guilty before all the people. But the other rebuked this other criminal saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus guilty sinner looks to Jesus and says, Remember me. This is an expression of faith. He made a declaration based on what he knew about Jesus that he was pure. And he says to him, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. There is exp- an expression of true confidence and faith that Jesus has a kingdom and he will enter into it soon because he is pure. And Jesus said in verse 43, Truly I say to you, Today You will be with me in paradise. Jesus proclaims a promise to the one who cries out in faith and confesses his need and his own guilt. Jesus saves the helpless who turn to him by God's grace. How can we not declare that message if Jesus did it from the cross of Calvary? We have that message and we are to magnify Jesus' work By declaring it evangelistically, consistently, sacrificially even. Evangelization of the lost, I think, magnifies, to me, truly magnifies the mystery of Jesus' love for sinners like us. Just amazes me. Just shows me that God had such an amazing plan That I could have never imagined on my own. Yet He has revealed that to us in the person and work of His Son. God, the Son Himself, coming to earth in our place as our substitute, dying for us to declare that God has grace for sinners. That is our message to take to the world. That's why we're saved. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are saved for good deeds, good works. The greatest work we could ever do as redeemed people is to glorify Jesus by sharing the gospel. That is the greatest work. In that we declare how great God's mercy is to us and how great it can be to those who are lost. And what God has done to reconcile wicked sinners by sending forth His Son, to live our life, die our death, to rise victorious, to declare us righteous by His grace through faith in what His Son has accomplished. That that kind of evangelization doesn't come in a vacuum. That, That evangelization comes from corporate edification. It comes from gathering with the church and being taught the Word of God. Biblical knowledge is what creates this kind of evangelization of the lost. Biblical knowledge creates grace-driven evangelism. A true, deep understanding of who Jesus is and what God has accomplished will cause you to cry out with Paul, to live is Christ, and die doing His work is gain. Evangelism truly is this for us who are saved. Evangelism is truly just a reflection of Or a manifestation of our love for Jesus, who we want to magnify and make much of. And evangelization should affect our actions. It should affect our emotions. When you see the lost, do you weep over them? When you consider their eternal state, do you pray for them? Do you pursue them? Do you go after them and share the Gospel with them? If you love Jesus, that's the way you can magnify his greatness. That's how you can serve the lost. If you love somebody, that's what you do. You talk about them. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love this church. I talk about you. I share with others what you mean to me. That's what we do when we evangelize. That's all evangelization is. It's talking to others about what, what the Savior has done for us. That's what we were created to do. Our tongues were created to declare the gospel. The only reason you have a tongue in your mouth is to talk about Jesus. That's why He made it. That's why He gave you eyes to see and ears to hear, so that you can declare His greatness and encourage others biblically. If, if you do this, if you understand this, if we truly grasp this, the gospel this corporate gathering, evangelization of the lost, if we truly understand why we do all this, it will affect our emotions and our actions. See, right theology leads to right practice. Matter of fact, it leads to right emotions. If you you can hear the Word of God and hear the Gospel of Christ and not be brought to tears or say amen or shout or raise your hands or do something, in the heart, joy should be springing up. If that's not happening, you're not thinking. See, right worship, right affections come from right thinking. Being connected to God and His Word will transform everything about the sinner's life, our emotions, our obedience. Let me give you an example of that from Acts. Acts 13. I find Acts 13 to be a very fascinating text for many reasons. Acts 13, 48. But I'm going to try to reserve my... Thoughts to to what I want to get across here, because there's a lot about election in this that I'd like to bring out, but I won't. Maybe I will. Look what it says. <laughs> this this is an example of this is an example of right thinking leading to right emotions and right actions. Look what it says in 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 thirteen forty-eight. It says. Alright, let me go back. Verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Oh, and look at this. And, And when the Gentiles heard this, what happened? They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. The declaration, the revelation of God's grace to them. And then here comes the amazing phrase and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed oh that's why they were rejoicing that's why they were magnifying the word of the lord because they were appointed to eternal life and they believed and their belief led to joy and worship and adoration for the word that was revealed to them by god's grace and illuminated by his spirit see the holy spirit is in control of our worship If there is no Spirit moving, there is no worship. Yet if the Word of God is richly dwelling in you, the Spirit is filling you and equipping you to do what it says here, to rejoice and glorify Jesus. And then notice what it says in verse 49. That's the right emotion, then it leads to right actions. And the Word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Well, who is it spreading through? Is it just those Jews who shared the Gospel with the Gentiles? No, no everyone who was rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord is now praising Him through evangelism. This this is not a quiet text. This is not a reserved text. This, This text is quite loud. This text, if you were there with these men in this text, if you were there in that building or that arena or wherever it would be, if you were there when they Find, find out according to the word of the Lord they were appointed to eternal life and they believed, you would have heard loud worship, rejoicing, thanksgiving, magnification of the greatness of God's revelation. That's, that's what happens in heaven, by the way. You see a little glimpse of this on earth from time to time when we gather corporately. You see this kind of stirring up of emotions and rejoicing and glorifying the Word of God, but you will see it perfected and you will hear it quite loudly in heaven. There, there will not be a ceasing of rejoicing or glorifying the Word of God, the Lamb of God, Jesus, the Messiah. You will hear it, you will see it, and you will magnify it for eternity. That's what we get a foretaste of when we gather corporately. That's why we're here. We're here to rejoice and evangelize and to serve. As a result of what Christ has done for us. So that we can magnify Him with our voice. Now on earth. And with our life. And with our death. After we enter into His presence. Thirdly. I want you to see that. That we worship God. And joyfully magnify Jesus. Through sacrificial dedication. According to Philippians 2.14. Here Paul is setting an example for us to follow the whole book of philippians is written in such a form to to share with us how we should follow paul as he follows jesus his attitude should be our attitude because his attitude is given to him by the spirit of christ and we have that same spirit residing in us so we should follow this example that's set here so we could sacrificially dedicate our lives to magnifying christ that's what he does here in 214 do do all things Here's how you magnify Jesus corporately, evangelistically, and sacrificially. Do do everything you do without complaining, without grumbling or questioning. If you serve Christ and you want to magnify him, you don't complain. He's sovereign over every circumstance, even your imprisonment, even your sickness, even your prosperity or your lack of prosperity. Don't grumble or complain. Question that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, you're gathered corporately to learn not to complain or to grumble based on what God has done for us, so that you would be blameless, so you would live differently than the world around you, so that you could. Declare to this crooked and twisted generation that there is a life-transforming spirit that resides in you according to God's grace and revealed through His Word. So you hold fast, verse 16 says, to the Word of life so that in the day of Jesus, the day of Christ, when Christ returns, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I'll be proud that, that I taught you faithfully and the evidence of that was manifest in your obedience, your lack of grumbling, your your... Holiness, your blameless condition, your light in the midst of darkness. Verse 17 says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, if I am to be killed, he says, if I am to die upon the sacrifice offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. This is sacrificial dedication. We gather and we worship God joyfully and magnify Christ when we exemplify this In our lives. We we would be willing to have our lives poured out as a drink offering for the sake of one another in this church. So that you would learn to trust in God's sovereignty. Rejoice over Christ's atoning work. So that you would stand out in holiness filled with His Spirit, distinct from the world as lights shining in the darkness. Paul says, I would sacrifice my entire life just to see You, on the day of Christ, shining, reflecting, magnifying Jesus. That's what a worship-filled heart is willing to do. A worship-filled heart is willing to suffer for sharing God's Word. And we're willing to suffer because we know that the truth about Jesus is worth living and dying for. The Apostle Paul knew that Theologically, and he knew it experientially. The Apostle Paul, according to church history, was beheaded on the outskirts of Rome for preaching, for magnifying Jesus. But he went there joyfully, knowing that his work had been complete. He had delivered the full counsel of God to God's people and they were informed so they could worship and magnify Jesus even when he was gone. And God in his mercy gave us his letters so that we could continue on doing what Paul told Timothy to do. Preach the word when it's popular, when it's not, so that Jesus would be made much of in this world. All the faithful men of God that followed Jesus personally understood what it meant to live is Christ and die is gain. Luke was hung on an olive tree for preaching the gospel. The Apostle Peter was crucified upside down for loving and declaring the glory of Jesus. Mark was pierced. He was stabbed to death for preaching about Jesus Matthew was nailed to the ground and beheaded because he loved Christ and wanted to see him exalted. They were all killed for worshiping God according to his word. They worship God biblically, corporately, evangelistically, and sacrificially. And there are countless other martyrs who are suffering today to magnify Jesus throughout the world. But the greatest martyr, the greatest suffering that ever occurred to magnify God's grace was what our Lord Jesus went through when he suffered on the cross to give us eternal life so that we could magnify him on earth and in heaven forever. Through Christ's sacrifice and his evangelism and his gathering of his people, according to God's word, we are made worshipers. But for us to be made worshipers, God had to crush his only begotten son. You understand this. When we come to Isaiah 53.10, what, what, what Isaiah is telling us is that for us to be able to enter into God's presence today and worship him according to God's word in holiness and in righteousness, he had to crush Jesus. God the Father, had to crush God the Son to create worshipers. Worshipers who will magnify Jesus here on earth and in eternity. Verse 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to Daka, to crush. To crush Him. Trample Him to death. He has put Him to grief. God the Father has put God the Son to To grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see the offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, which is Christ, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquity. See, see, we're, we're made righteous because of Christ's sacrifice. We're made worshipers and we have our sins and our iniquities removed because He bore them in our place. The crushing of Jesus produces the sweet-smelling aroma of life. And that sweet aroma is what covers the stench of our death, of our sin. Now, in God's sight, because of the crushing of His Son, we can worship Him as pleasing And righteous in Christ. We are a pleasing aroma to God through Christ now, because the filth of our defilement has been washed. And the aroma of Christ's righteousness has filled the nostrils of God in our place when all we had before was the stench of death. Through the shedding of Jesus' blood, we have been washed. The flood of Christ's love washed away our sins. But our sins were dealt with quite severely so that we could be made clean. God's wrath was poured out on God the Son in our place so that we could be cleansed and able to now love the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and to declare His goodness and His grace. That's why we have been saved. That is what drives us to worship God today in spirit and in truth. That's what drove the Apostle Paul to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Christ is gain for us in life or in death. To live and die for Christ is what we must look forward to every single day as we go to His Word and we grow in the grace and knowledge of what He has done. The revealed truth about Jesus is what truly fuels and drives the hearts of true worshipers. It drives us to joyfully proclaim Christ even if it costs us our lives. It also drives us to joyfully proclaim that our death, listen, our death would be gain if we truly understand what Christ has accomplished. After death, Jesus will then have our undivided, perfect, and pure, eternal worship. There will be no cessation of worship in heaven. When this body of death is removed, we will not be distracted by sin. We will not be distracted by the world. We will be completely entranced by Jesus. And He will have our full attention. And we will be in His presence and we will worship Him and cry out His worth forever and ever. And we will declare in heaven what we declare here on earth, that the Lamb of God is worthy. The One who was slain. We will will sing and praise Jesus for the cross in heaven. Heaven is cross-centered. And heaven is loud like Acts 13. We'll end with this. We'll end with a picture of what we will do in heaven and what we want to do now on earth which is to magnify Jesus from Revelation 5. This is what drove the Apostle Paul to gather the church corporately, even though it cost him everything. This is what drove the Apostle Paul to evangelize the lost, even though it would cost him everything. This is what caused him to want to sacrifice his life to magnify the sacrifice of Jesus. This is what he was looking forward to. This is is what drives our attitudes as worshipers. This hope, This promise, this reality, this loud blaring example of worship is what we will partake of in heaven by God's grace and for Jesus' glory. Revelation 5.1 Then I saw on the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? Who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now listen, saints, everyone he's speaking to in heaven is has been made perfect, right? But no one's worthy except one. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders... oh, John says, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes and with seven spirits, the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders... They they fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That's, That's your prayers coming up before God, right there in heaven, right then. And they sang a new song. And here's the song that we are called to sing in heaven and the song that we should be singing on earth because it magnifies Jesus and his worthiness. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Why, he says, why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom. It's your work. It's your blood. It's your people that are redeemed. A kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. I mean, they hear this declaration. They hear the song in heaven and everyone responds in heaven to this truth And the elders fell down and worshipped Jesus. That is the magnification of Christ in our death. That's gain. No one was distracted in heaven. Not even the angels who are holy. Not even those on the earth. No one was distracted when the revelation of who Jesus is was declared. How could we, how could we not respond? How could we not want to proclaim this magnificent Jesus that we love, that died for us, that was slain for our sins? This Jesus is worthy of our future worship, and He is worthy of our present worship. He is worthy of our corporate edification, our evangelistic passion, and our sacrificial dedication here on earth. That, that's, that's all to set up Philippians 1, 20, one to live as Christ and to die as gain to magnify Jesus that is that is life that is life eternal the life of Christ being magnified through his redeemed people and that's what you are you are the redeemed of God you are the people who will be around the throne singing that song for eternity and that, that should that should cultivate some emotion in us some response, some evangelism. So I pray today that that's what this helped you to do by God's grace.